Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 23rd episode of PEM Podcast, the Psychic Eye Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Laurie, with my schmabulous sister, Sandy. Hi, Sands. How you doing? Sandy's having a beautiful hair day. She looks so pretty today. You look so pretty. Do this, do this, do this, do this wave, do this. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I'm having her wave like the queen that she is, that we all know her to be and love <laughs> so ass backwards it's not even funny <laughs> hey pull the, the mic towards you pull the mic towards you i can barely hear you you know me you're definitely. the queen <laughs> don't you forget it um yeah little known fact sandy and i were named after queens so um yeah. dead queens <laughs> dead queens i know yes exactly <laughs> oh whatever whatever yeah and had our brother been born a girl it would have been elizabeth so it was alexandra victoria and elizabeth so no imagination <laughs> gonna borrow from readily established although you know um i have to say i've always loved my name i've always loved victoria um and um i know you changed your name have not. early on, early on i have not <laughs> I, I love the name Alexander, though. I have to say, I do love that name. Um, but it's a I, freaking I can't imagine. <laughs> I honestly cannot imagine calling you Alexandra because I've known you my entire, like my entire life. I've known you and Sandy. So, um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. I am back from Hawaii. Can you talk a little some? Um, yeah, we were going to do an episode in Hawaii and Sands gets a hold of me and I'm like, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much just kind of like face planted on the beach for four or five days. I have one kind of two days of kind of adventure. Um, Kauai is breathtaking. It's, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful, but um, it is six time zones away from where I live. And um, yeah, it's six hours difference. That's There's not six, six hours. time zones. That's four time zones. No. It's six. Yeah. Sands. All right. Well, whatever. I think it's four. I'll just go with four. Four sounds good. I like four. I love you. <laughs> Let's start over, shall we? You are adorable. You really are. Let's start over. You're I think adorable. we should. <laughs> Oh God, hilarious. Let's go anyway, back to this. Yeah. So it's six hours difference, folks, from Eastern time zone to Hawaii is six hours difference. And I just I've decided I can't do that. I'm too old and too tired to go that far anymore. So I don't know. I'll just go like Caribbean or something. I don't know, other direction. Um, I did not, it took me about almost 10 days really to kind of come back with that. Um, so you know, it didn't help matters either that um <laughs> I went to Seattle as a, as a, as a favor to a dear friend, I don't, I don't do psychic parties. Um, uh, but a dear friend of mine really, really wanted me to, um, read for, uh, her closest girlfriend. So I said, yes. And it was two days of a lot of people <laughs> and it like broke me. <laughs> I was just an absolute zombie. Oh my God. The psychic part of my brain just like, was like, I'm on strike. So, um, but, you know, amazing women, incredible readings. Um, I forget sometimes how much clearer and easier it is when I'm literally in the same room with the person uh, rather than being over Zoom or, or over the telephone. And um, uh, my dear friend um, who had asked me to come out and do the psychic party is a, is a Reiki master. She's amazing with energy. <clears throat> and I will be honest with you. I, I have all these years, I've kind of poo-pooed Reiki. I've really been like, is that even a thing? <laughs> like, is that real? You know, like I'm the most, it's so crazy. Cause I'm like the most skeptical person about anything that's paranormal. If I don't, if I literally don't experience it, I kind of don't believe it. I'm kind of like, yeah, that's bullshit. Um, but um, uh, she had, um set the energy of the room that i did readings in and i swear to god i could feel the pulsing i could just feel it just was like really incredible um and so i think 
I was kind of amped up on that energy and it was just much easier. So the, the details from the other side were just incredible. It was, it was kind of an amazing experience to um, be involved in, but although I don't know that I'll do that many people again. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a cool experience. I have to say, loved it, loved it. Okay, um, enough of me babbling. Let's, um, do you wanna do anecdotes or book first? I, I don't know how well, to do these anymore. I'm the anecdote would be good because you just set it up. Okay, I did just set it up. So at this, um, at this, <laughs> sorry, I'm still four dash six time zones away from where I normally am. <laughs> five, we'll just call it in the middle. We'll just say five. <laughs> Let's ask Santa. How many time zones is it between here? Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to exactly. eat? Exactly. Get to the center robot. Yeah. One. Oh two, gosh. Four. <laughs> oh man, we haven't even been drinking yet either. I'm more of this goofy today. Um. Anyway, so uh, the anecdote that I had was one of the women lovely, lovely woman <clears throat> who um, came and sat for me. And I believe I pulled in, um, I think I pulled in her, her father, then her mother, I think. I can't, they all kind of blend together, um, which is not unusual. I mean, typically for me, when I open that, that gate, when I'm like, okay, who wants to step forward? It's almost always someone in the hierarchy. It's almost always someone in the ancestral tree. So it's going to be parents, grandparents, or great grandparents. Um, and, and, I love that from the perspective that there's this deference given to our elders, right? And that the family tree is still so strong. Um, and that's another thing um, that I've noticed is that um, oftentimes grandparents come in with so much love as if they had a really special relationship with their grandchild. And um, it does not matter at all if the grandchild was born after the grandparent died. Um, they still form this really loving bond. And there's this feeling of we've been connected since you were tiny, a little weeny little thing. Um, so, uh, you know, your grandparents, if you have never met a grandparent or some of your grandparents, um, Sandy and I didn't meet two of ours, uh, one on each side, um, both passed away before we were born. <clears throat> Um, but they form really, really close ties to us just because I think we're in the family tree, we're in the lineage. Also probably because we're kind of in that cluster, right? It's my belief that we all kind of cycle through sort of together is probably, you know, 60, 70, 100 people in a kind of pod that kind of go through and we agree, okay, so I'll be your mom this time, or I'll be your dad that time, or I'll be your brother or whatever before we, we come down here. But um, uh, so anyway, getting back on track. So I think I pulled in her mom and her dad or vice versa. I uh, can't, I can't really remember and went through, you know, they had some really lovely, wonderful, very clear messages. And then, um, she said, uh, can you pick up my son? And I had not, I had not, there wasn't a young man in the room. Right. When she asked this, so I do my little, okay, you know, is her son around and you know, he hits me, the energy, right. Um, you know, boom. And um, I distinctly, I rarely hear, I rarely like literally hear any word. Um, like, you know, it's rare. I'll, I'll hear like B as in being, you know, say B, right? I'll hear B or I might hear, you know, Nick. Okay, I might hear uh, the, the name, but it's really rare that I hear a full sentence. This kid comes in and he goes, hi, mom. Oh, it broke me. It absolutely broke me. I like started to cry. She started to cry. He was so excited, so excited. Like, just like a little kid just couldn't wait to get, you know, to mom and be like, oh, you're here. You know, he was so excited. And um, he wasn't young either. I think when he passed away, I think he was in his uh, late teens. And um, uh, this kid was kind of incredible. He had this, he had this whole life on the other side that he had, um, kind of uh, developed uh, after he crossed over. There was no hint that, you know, he was working out any karmic issues over there. He was, uh, he kept telling me that he was hanging with his posse. Uh, so he had formed friends who were similar in age on the other side. And he kept showing me motorcycles that they were kind of motorcycling all over on the other side, you know, get your motor running. They were kind of touring the place. 
Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he felt wonderful. His energy just felt wonderful and happy and, um, you know, healthy because they're all healthy over there. Um, but um, it was kind of a, an amazing thing to sort of be in the middle of and witness um, because almost always when a soul comes to me, they're like, yes. And so my job is this, right. Um, <clears throat> especially if they were an alcoholic or a drug abuser, or, you know, were an, ab were an abusive personality, you know, they have stuff to work out right over there. So they might help people here, um, who, uh, are going through similar situations. This kid, nope, just having a good time on the other side, just hanging uh, with his posse and um, loving it and checking in with his family every once in a while, but he had a full and very rich life on the other side. So, and of course you would, right? Of course you do. Like, of course you do. Um, I don't know why it keeps surprising me, but it, it does. It kind of keeps surprising me that, that the other side is just so rich with stuff to do and people to see. And <clears throat> um, it's like our world expanded exponentially um, on the fun side, on the fun and loving side. So um, yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. You had any uh, questions, Sans? No, no. I'm simply going to say that. I, well, this, this is the third instance where you've mentioned somebody being riding a motorcycle kind of freely. Around. I know. So I'm wondering if they're, they're there's like motorcycle kings on the other side. I'm telling you, <laughs> <laughs> it's heaven's angels on the other side. Yeah. No, yeah, hell's angels. Go. It's heaven's angels heaven's over angels. on the other side. Yeah. 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 No, there's a lot of motorcycles. There are a lot of boats um, and a lot of cars, but it's so interesting because I almost never see like modern cars. Normally I see cars from like anytime between like the 1930s and like the 1960s. So it's sort of that range when cars were cool um, that I see um, people showing me on the other side, you know, like, yeah, this is my sweet ride, you know? Um, so it's just, it's just the, for the glimpses into the other side and life on the other side alone, it's such fascinating work. It really is. And I can't, fully describe it um uh to my clients you know it's almost like gosh I wish you could see what I see I wish you could kind of experience what I'm experiencing right now um by connecting with your loved one it's it's absolutely cool so it really is it just gives gives me a lot of hope you know as dire as the world is around us right now it's crazy as upsetting <laughs> as the world is right now. I know, yes, yes. It gets better on the other side. That's the only thing. Finish your work here. Do what you needed to do down here. Don't sweat it. Everybody crosses. You'll be good. It's all good. It's all good. Um, and speaking of reincarnation, boop -ba -da -da, forever again. Ba -ba -da -da, ba -ba -da -da. So um, this is the book promotion time segment of our pen podcast. Um, this was a book I wrote um, when I when I sold when uh, the book went to Disney's Hyperion. They wanted a two book deal, which you always love as an author, right? Because it's extra work um, and extra pay. Um, and so this was the second book that followed uh, when, not a sequel, but a separate standalone. And it um, involves uh, two teenagers. Um, who, uh, Colin Lily, of course I had to name her Lily because of my Lily. Um, and I love that they're kind of Lily petals on the cover. So Lily was, was my beloved little doxy that I'm still heartbroken over losing seven years ago. Um, I miss her dearly. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> so forever again involves, um, a murder mystery, um, and two teenagers who were murdered and um, reincarnate and they find each other again as new souls and they start remembering things from their past lives um, and that leads them to um, attempt to solve the mystery of what uh, of who murdered their former selves so um, you and I since have been talking about reincarnation quite a lot lately um, yeah <laughs> Um, so, you know, I always find it interesting when people are like, I was a 17th century nun. I'm like, cool. You know, like, who am I to say, really, were you really, then I might be thinking that a little bit. Um, but then again, you know, it's not something I've ever experienced. I've never experienced this feeling of 
this happened to me in a former life. Like, you know, I know, I know um, past life regression exists. People can get there under hypnosis. I've seen enough cases where that's happened um, and provided enough details where it really couldn't be anything other than, you know, um, but um, it's not something I've ever experienced. Have you ever had any glimpse, Sands, of like anything like uh, former life type thing? The only thing I can relate it to would be going to a place I've never been before and finding it to be very familiar or very like, okay. comfortable. That would yeah. be, yeah. yeah. So for me, that's London. Okay, and... for me, that was Ireland. When we were, remember when we went, we were young and we went and spent um, a holiday in Ireland. Was it Belfast? Were we in Belfast? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Belfast. Um, so for you, it was London. Sandy spent quite a bit of time in London. Um, it's kind of your favorite town, right? Well, there, there are several favorite cities, but yes, uh, London is uh, home in for whatever reason. It's always felt very familiar and very comfortable. And um, we have the I miss queen, it. The Queen wave down. Yeah, I do. You know, so um, maybe maybe that's part of the past life. You know, I don't know. That, and you know, the other pretty natural. I have to say that kind of that hand popped up and started going pretty naturally. <laughs> uh, and the other place that for me, like I cry every time I leave it is Hawaii. I just, it's heaven for me. I, I keep trying you to, know. I keep you trying so to fall in love with Hawaii. I yeah. keep trying and I just can't, it just doesn't feel like I have any connection to it whatsoever. So I think it's amazing that you do. Cause I just Which really, is, I feel well, bad. I figured that out I a way, a way I'll, I figured out a way to completely get away from you. I'll just go to Hawaii <laughs> and then. <laughs> yeah, that's effective. That'll work. Yeah. You go for it. Go those four, four, five, seven time zones away. Seamless. I won't follow you. It's okay. It's cool. Yeah, Cause you're not invited. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. You know, right, well, on quiet just kind of became apparent really that, um, uh, we're kind of trespassing on, on land that is not ours, you know, um, we're not native and I really feel sorry for the locals, honestly, um, because they kind of got to put up with, um, us coming in there and kind of feeling entitled to trample where we want to trample and bring, um, there is actually in Kauai, and this is really heartbreaking. There's a fungus <clears throat> that is attached, um, killing trees, the most um, plentiful tree uh, in Hawaii. It's a certain type of tea, tree. I can't remember what it is. But there's a fungus that's attacking it and killing it in weeks, sometimes days. So it's something like 6 billion acres of, um, of tree and forest. Natural beauty is under threat from this fungus and, you know, didn't get there from the wind. Someone, you know, walked in an area where the fungus was, got hopped on a plane, jumped off, and there it is. So there's a lot, there's a lot of damage that we do um, by going over there. And I'm, and in Kauai, just I guess I was just really aware of it because Kauai is so beautiful. It's so breathtakingly beautiful. And from that standpoint, it feels a little fragile to me. So yeah, yeah. What are you gonna okay. do? So I think note. we should jump into our. <laughs> mystery. And if you hear heavy breathing behind me, it's my dog. I gave her a bone and this is the way I can keep her quiet. And I, I'm very aware of this going on behind me. It's, it's my can't dog. Hear it. Just can't hear it. Good. I kind of thought, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Can't hear it. Bella Excellent. is Bella's the best though. Someday you're going to have to hold her up for the camera because she's adorable. Bella okay. loves me. She, so Sandy doesn't like that. She loves me. <laughs> I don't mind that she loves you. You just take over my dog. I'll take over. Bella comes it. to me. Bella comes and wants to sleep with me whenever I visit. It's because you stand at the bottom of the stairs with cookies. I don't. I swear I don't. <laughs> don't tell your mom. <laughs> oh, I love Bella. All right. Okay, Sands, take it away. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got to pull up the slides here. Hold, hold the phone. We got to do our so, amateur hour. Our story is about the Springfield Three, which is an unsolved missing persons case uh, that goes back to 1992, uh, surrounding the disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, her daughter, Susie Streeter, and Susie's best friend, Stacey McCall. Um, and they were taken, supposedly, from uh, the Levitt's Springfield, Missouri home. 
So the story begins on Saturday, June 6, 1992, 18-year-old Stacy McCall and her best friend, 19-year-old Susie Streeter, celebrated their high school graduation from Kickapoo High School, surrounded by friends and family, all of which was captured by ceremonial and candid photos of the day. Excited about their plans for a night of partying that included stops at various friends' houses and a sleepover in a Branson hotel, the girls left the Hammond Student Center at 7.30 that evening. By 8.30, they were among friends at their first stop, a house party on Coach Drive in nearby Battlefield, and then they headed to Springfield to attend a second house party. At 10.30, Stacy called her mother, Janice McCall, to let her know that she and Susie had decided against their plans to drive to Branson and stay in a hotel, and instead, they were heading to their friend Janelle Kirby's house to spend the night. The pair were last seen by friends around 2.15 in the morning on June 7th, when they were leaving their last party in the 1500 block of East Hanover Street in Springfield. But instead of settling at Janelle's house, which was overcrowded with guests, the girls opted to go to Susie's house at 1717 East Delmar Street to retire for the night and sleep in Susie's new king-size waterbread, a graduation present from her mother, Cheryl. As they left, the girls promised Janelle that they'd talk later in the morning to coordinate about a planned day trip to the Whitewater theme park in Branson. As agreed, Janelle called, called Susie around 8.30 on su Sunday morning to finalize their plans for the day, but no one answered the phone. By noon, Janelle, not having heard from Stacy or Susie, drove to Susie's house with her boyfriend, Mike. Upon arrival, Janelle noticed Stacy's Toyota Corolla was parked behind Susie's red Ford Escort in the Levitt circular driveway, and Cheryl's blue Mitsubishi was parked in the carport. Hopping out of the vehicle, a barefoot Janelle walked up the front walkway and immediately noticed broken glass glimmering on the front steps. The porch globe was busted, yet the yellow bulb burned bright under the midday sun. Janelle surmised that someone or something may have bumped it accidentally. With no response to her knocks, Janelle peered through the living room window and saw that the room was tidy with nothing out of place. Thinking that her friends might be out back sunbathing on the cloudless 80 degree day, Janelle walked around to the backyard but found the yard empty. As a favor to Susie's mom and to protect Janelle's bare feet, Janelle's boyfriend, Mike, grabbed a broom, swept up the broken porch light glass, and dumped the remnants in, a, in, a, in the garbage in the garage. Police would later determine that Mike unknowingly discarded a vital piece of evidence. Janelle and Mike then entered the quiet house through the unlocked front door to look for the course. So sorry. After calling out their names, Susie, Cheryl, Stacy. After calling out their names, Susie, Cheryl, Stacy, Janelle encountered Susie's Yorkie, Cinnamon, who was overly excited and even agitated and took immediate comfort in Janelle's arms. Thinking that perhaps the girls were asleep or maybe they'd left a note indicating where they had gone, Janelle searched the house, walking through the living room, kitchen, bathroom, and finally Susie's bedroom. Janelle noticed that Susie's bed covers were pulled back and her room was a little messy, which was very typical of Susie. But she did notice two oddities. All three women's purses were piled up on the steps of Susie's sunken bedroom and Susie and Cheryl had left behind their cigarettes something the two women who were habitual smokers were rarely without. Concerned, Janelle and Mike went to a nearby friend's house to see if the girls had stopped by there before meeting up with the group for the trip to Branson, but their friend Shane had not seen the girls. Janelle and Mike then returned to Susie's house on East Delmar Street, but found no sign of the girls. Thinking that Susie and Stacy might've walked up to the local sub shop to grab sandwiches for lunch, Janelle and Mike hurried over there, but again, found nothing. Worried by the fact that they didn't know where Susie and Stacy had gone, Janelle called Stacy's mom to explain that she and Mike could not find Stacy and Susie. Janice, annoyed by the fact that her daughter had not told her about her change in plans to spend the night at Susie's, <clears throat> left the first of two messages on Susie's answering machine. Janice and the rest of the McCall family left home to spend the day at Lake Springfield to watch miniature boat races. As the sun was starting to set and concerned that they still had not heard from Stacy, Janice and one of her two older daughters jumped in a car and drove toward the, toward the Levitt's tiny house on Delmar. The plan was that the sister would drive Stacy's car home. Upon arrival at around 7 p.m., Janice entered the Levitt's dark, unlocked house. After looking around the small, dimly lit room, she made her way through the house in search of Stacy's car keys and clothes. And when she came upon Stacy's purse and discovered her migraine medication, Janice knew that something was very wrong. Stacy never went anywhere without her medication. As Janice grew increasingly worried that she had not heard from her daughter, which was highly unusual, the Delmar house began filling with concerned friends and family members who had heard that the women were unaccounted for. The mother of one of Stacy's friends joined Janice in the kitchen and began calling Cheryl's friends that were noted in her personal phone book to see if anyone had seen where the women might be or, or have gone. And 
through their efforts, discovered that no one had heard from Cheryl uh, after 11.15 p.m. on Saturday, June 6th. That was the last time she talked to friend talked to a friend about painting a chest of drawers. After calling her husband, Stu, with an update, Janice called the Springfield police and requested an officer to the scene. Upon arrival to the Levitt's home, Officer Rick Bookout found several people milling both inside and outside the home, including the McCalls and Janelle Kirby, who had re returned from the Springfield water park slide. Once she, he had taken their statements, Officer Bookout contacted, contacted dispatch and requested Officer Brian Galt to join him at the scene. In Susie's room, they took note of two slats in the window blinds that were separated. The three women's purses were all together. Stacy's sitting on Susie's overnight bag and Cheryl's contained a large amount of cash and the bedroom TV was turned on. It was apparent that the women had gotten ready for bed. Each had washed off makeup and tossed a damp cloth in the hamper and some of Susie's jewelry was left on the wash basin. Stacy had neatly folded her flowered shorts, tucking her jewelry into her pockets and placed them on her sandals beside Susie's waterbed. Police believe that she had left the home wearing only a t-shirt and underwear. After inspecting Cheryl's room, police determined that Cheryl's bed had been slept in and that the kitchen refrigerator, they found an untouched graduation cake, which had been dropped off by a friend of Cheryl's at around 8.30 on Saturday night. While the house bore no signs of a struggle, the fact that all personal property, including purses, money, clothing, cars, keys, cigarettes, medication, and the family dog had all been left behind, strongly indicated that, that the three women had been abducted sometime between 2.30 and 8 a.m. on Sunday, June 7th. How and under what circumstance the women left the house remains a mystery. Unfortunately, any meaningful evidence that could have been collected from the Levitt's house was compromised by the 18 people who stopped by throughout June 7th looking for the missing women. After interviewing Janelle, police learned that while she had been in the home earlier that day looking for Susie and Stacy, she had answered a strange and disturbing call from an unidentified male who made sexual innuendos. She hung up and immediately received another call of a sexual nature, again, hanging up the phone. Adding to this mystery, Janice, after placing her call to the police to come to the Levitt home, checked the phone's answering machine and listened to a strange message, but it was inadvertently deleted. <clears throat> While the police were very interested in the message that had been lost because they believed it may have contained a clue, they did not believe the message was connected to the prank calls Janelle had received earlier that day. Within a few days of June 7th, more than 20,000 posters of the missing women were printed and then plastered on telephone poles, storefront windows, restaurants, and truck stops. The posters provided detailed descriptions of each of the missing white females. Cheryl Elizabeth Levitt, age 47, was born November 1st, 1944. She was five foot, five foot tall, 110 pounds, with a thin build and brown eyes, short bleach blonde hair, naturally curly, longer on top and shorter in the back. Her distinguishing features included pierced ears, freckles on her neck and upper chest area. The single mother worked as a cosmetologist at a local salon and had purchased her single story, story East Delmar Street home two months prior to her disappearance. Susan Elizabeth Streeter, known as Susie, age 19, was born uh, March 9th, 1973, stood at five foot two, 102 pounds, brown eyes with straight bleached blonde shoulder length hair. She had large teeth with no dental work. She had a three and a half inch scar on her upper right forearm, a small mole on the left corner of her mouth and pierced ears, the left ear being pierced twice. Susie and her mom, Cheryl, were known to have a very close relationship and Susie had worked at a local movie theater as a ticket collector and had planned to attend beauty school in the fall. Stacy Kathleen McCall was aged 18, date of birth was April 23rd, 1974. She stood at five foot three inches, 120 pounds, blue eyes, dark blonde hair to the middle of her back with sun lightened ends. She had freckles on her face and a dimple in the middle of her chin. Stacy had worked at a local health club and modeled wedding gowns part-time. With few clues about the whereabouts of the missing women, a massive ground search was launched. Police and volunteers rode horses and walked through fields of tall grass on the southwest side of town where Chesterville Village now stands. Police even dug up anthills thought to be fresh graves and chased circling buzzards hoping to find a clue. The Springfield Police Department also made efforts to take the case national, believing that if the disappearance was a serial crime, someone in another state could hold an answer. By the end of the first week, faces of the missing women appeared on America's Most Wanted, sparking 29 calls from across the nation. The national news program, 48 Hours, shadowed local police for weeks, shooting pictures of searches, polygraphs, and officers shifting through leads. With the assistance of the FBI, Missouri State Highway Patrol, and numerous other law enforcement agencies, an extensive investigation into the lives of the missing women was conducted. 
Cheryl's son, Bart Streeter, was briefly considered a suspect, and oddly, after being cleared by the police, he quit his job and left Springfield never to return. Susie's father was also interviewed and cleared of suspicion. As following from his divorce from Cheryl shortly after Susie's birth, he had had minimal involvement with his daughter or his ex-wife. Cheryl's second husband, whom she divorced in 1989, had had no contact with her since their divorce and could not be located for questioning. Police also searched the Boulevard Road apartments after obtaining an anonymous, an anonymous letter left in the newsleader rack at Smitty's on Glenstone Ave. The letter contained a drawing of the apartment building with the phrase, use ruse of gas man checking for leak. Investigators also followed up on a tip that neighbors saw a transient near the Levitt home days prior to the disappearance. Police then released a composite drawing of the man with long hair and a full beard. Investigators also learned from a convenience store clerk that at approximately 2.15 a.m. on June 7th, Cheryl had hurriedly, hurriedly entered the doorway of the APCO A-Mart to check, ask the clerk whether he'd seen her daughter and or two of her daughter's friends, but police were unable to determine what had happened that prompted Cheryl to go looking for her daughter on that night she, Susie, and Stacy disappeared. They also pursued a tip provided by a witness who claimed that in the early morning hours of June 7th, she had seen Susie behind the wheel of a green metallic 1960s Dodge panel van with painted out black back windows and heard a male voice from inside the van commanding Susie to back up slowly and turn around and do not make any silly or stupid moves. And while authorities theorized that a single man could have used a gas leak ruse to lure the women out of the Levitt's home, the investigation did not lead to a single piece of conclusive evidence concerning the reason for or where or what happened to, the, to Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. Six months later, on December 31st, 1992, a man called America's Most Wanted Hotline with information about the women's disappearances, but the call was disconnected when the switchboard operator attempted to link the call with the Springfield investigators. Police said the caller had prime knowledge of the abductions and publicly appealed to the man to contact them, but he never did. In August of 1993, acting on a temp, police searched farmland in Webster County looking for the green metallic Dodge panel van and the bodies of the three missing women. Police confirmed that they found items of interest but would not disclose, disclose what was discovered because the details um, were protected behind a search warrant. Five years later, in 1997, former Army Ranger Robert Craig Cox, a convicted kidnapper and robber imprisoned in Texas in 1995 for aggravated robbery, claimed to journalists that he knew the Springfield Three had been murdered and that, th that their bodies would never be recovered. Cox was high on the list of the 10 people police considered suspects because he was a suspect in the 1978 Florida rape and murder of 19-year-old Dorothy Zellers, who was intercepted, intercepted as she traveled home from her job at Walt Disney World. Cox had been convicted for Dorothy's murder and served time on death row, but he was released in 1989 following a Florida Supreme Court decision to overturn his conviction. Coincidentally, in 1992, Cox had been living in Springfield, Missouri, working for SM&P Conduit Inc. as a utility locator tasked with marking underground utilities in South Central Springfield. When interviewed in June of 1992, he told investigators that he was with his girlfriend at church the morning after the women disappeared, which she corroborated. However, she later recanted her statement and said that Cox had asked her to say that. Cox also stated that he was at the home of his parents on the night of the June 6th and 7th, and they confirmed that alibi. Cox had met Ted Bundy during his stay in Stark, Florida prison, so authorities were uncertain if Cox was involved in the case of the three missing women or if he was simply seeking recognition for the alleged murders by issuing false statements. Cox stated to authorities and journalists he would disclose what happened to the three women after his mother died. As of 2006, police have not been able to obtain enough evidence against Cox to, to secure an indictment. And while they can't ignore his comments regarding the Springfield Three, detectives believe there are other people and tips that look promising. For Sergeant Mike Owen, all of our eggs are not in Cox's basket. We, we're still looking at lots of different people. And if tomorrow we had a lead and solved this case and it wasn't Cox, I wouldn't be surprised. In 2007, investigators received a tip that there were women's bodies were buried in the foundations of the South parking garage at Cox Hospital. However, they did not believe that the lead to be credible as the construction on the parking garage began in September of 1993, 15 months after the women disappeared. Given that digging up the area in question would be extremely costly, the Springfield Police Department refused to follow up on the tip. Crime reporter Kathy Baird followed through on this tip, however, and invited Rick Norland, a mechanical engineer, to scan a corner of the parking garage with ground penetrating radar. Interestingly, Norland found three anomalies, roughly the same size, that he said were consistent with a grave site location. 
Two of the anomalies were parallel and the other was perpendicular. Despite their findings, the Springfield Police Department and Prosecutor's Office have stated that they have no intention of digging up the area without any reasonable belief that the bodies could be located there. In the aftermath of this tragedy, Cheryl Levitt and Susie Streeter were declared legally dead in 1997. However, their case files are still officially labeled missing. And in 1997, Susie's father passed away. Stacy's parents, Janice and Stu McCall, created an organization to help families who, whose loved ones are missing. They hold out hope that their daughter could one day be found and avowed not to declare her dead until investigators find her remains. Cheryl's son and Susie's brother, Bart, launched and maintained the, street family, the Streeter family blog until 2013, at which time he turned over publishing responsibilities to his daughter, Dee Streeter. Despite 5,000 tips and the case having been featured on 48 Hours, America's, Mo America's Most Wanted, Investigation Discovery, and People Magazine investigates, the mystery remains unsolved, and police do not have a clear picture of what happened to Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. A reward fund of $42,000 has been established for the location and prosecution of the persons responsible for the abduction of these three women. And my sources for this story are the Springfield, Missouri Police, Wikipedia, the Springfield Three, the Springfield News Leader, Three Missing Women, 10 Years Later, Parts 1 and 3. Uh, and then the Streeter Family Blog. And one final note is that according to Crime Watch Daily, um, Cox uh, worked with Stacy's dad, Stu, at an auto de dealership. And there was suspicion by Crime Watch Daily, at least, that um, he may have stalked uh, Stacy. So for what that's worth. So mm -hmm. what do you think happened? <clears throat> the globe that was found on the porch um, mm -hmm. shattered. That to me was the biggest clue that stood out. So um, Cox, you know, when I was reading your um, write up Sans, uh, uh, Cox's name jumped off the page at me. I'm like, okay, he definitely was involved. Um, but then also the girlfriend's testimony, um, there was something niggling at me about the girlfriend. <clears throat> so I did a meditation um, to try and, you know, hone in on it because I didn't it wasn't really coming together just kind of glancing at the write-up wasn't really coming um together for me so I did a, a meditation fell asleep woke up <laughs> meditation again I'm tired people um and um it was it was really interesting because once I once I woke up I had sort of a the feeling of what took place form and then I did an, a quick automatic writing <clears throat> and it kind of all came together. So it's my firm belief that there were three people ultimately involved. There were two there at the, um, at the home. Uh, the girlfriend I felt was involved. Um, I felt that um, Cox had been stalking um, the girls um, and that there was a view that he could see them from the backyard, that he could see um, uh, what was taking place inside. So he waited for the two girls to get home because um, he was really after the two girls. <clears throat> um, so he had his girlfriend um, fake a ruse. So they created a loud noise um, by dropping the globe and he had his girlfriend lay down on the ground. And um, when we were talking earlier, I said, you know, so the girls come to the door because they hear this loud crash, right? You're going to go see what that is, right? Immediately, you're going to leave. You're not going to take anything. You're just going to go and look and see what's wrong. They see this woman lying face down on the ground. They go outside to try and help her. He comes up behind them with a gun. So um, he then, I felt there was something that took place at the back of the house. There was this strong feeling that something at the back of that, the house took place. I don't know if he marched them back there and tied them up. I'm not quite sure what, what happened there. My one question to you is where was the van seen? Because um, in my automatic writing, I'd totally forgotten about the van. Um, and that came through that um, he marched them into the van. Do you know what street that was? Uh, like, was I don't, I don't think it was, I, I don't know. Let me see if I can find it in my write-up. Cause it almost felt like he took them around the back of the house and then through another back backyard and put them in a, in a in van. A van oh, that you know? makes sense. Because I just didn't feel like that van was on the same street. And that might've been the thing that took place behind the house. It, 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 the note is that um, 
a witness claimed in the early morning hours of June 7th, she had seen Susie behind the wheel of the green metallic okay. 1960s van mm-hmm. um, and heard a male voice inside commanding her to back up slowly and turn around and don't make any silly, stupid that mistakes. Part, but it doesn't, I think doesn't know bullshit. Yeah. The part where she's like, back up and don't make any silly or stupid moves. No man says silly. I'm sorry. That just, you know, as someone who writes dialogue, um, I've never, ever have a man say silly because they don't say silly. You know, they just don't say silly, especially in a serious moment where it's like you move, you die. And the mm-hmm. fact that she claims that she heard from inside the van, please come on. How close were you? you would have to have been standing right next to the van to have heard that so clearly. So right. I'm not buying that. Did she see the van? Yes. I really believe she did. Did she see Susie behind the wheel? Yes. I believe she did. Um, saw her in distress and made up the rest, whatever. Um, and then I, I feel like the third, there was a third person, um, a third male, um, well, one of two men, but the third person was a male. Um, and I kept getting this feeling like the third person had a connection, like a gang type connection. I don't think Cox did, but I think this third person did. Um, and I think that the girls were, um, you know, Unfortunately, I think that they were raped, um, uh, probably repeatedly. And I believe um, from my automatic writing that they were summarily executed, shot in the head, um, and that their remains were, um, there was an attempt to cremate them. So their remains were burned um, somewhere out in the wilderness. Um, And I doubt highly that they will ever be found. I don't, I don't buy the whole under the garage, the hospital at all. If you've ever seen a construction site, um, those graves would have had to have been really super deep because to put a, a parking garage, right? You have to lay a foundation. The foundation's not on the surface. You have to dig down, right? 10 feet, six feet, something, right? So no one's, you know, if you're, if you're burying three people, you're not digging more than four or five feet. Like you're just not, that's a lot of work, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. No, that's bullshit. Um, what about, I don't um, go ahead. What, what about Cheryl being seen at the convenience store? That didn't mean true to me either. I'm like, no, this really stands out as like, nope. You know, like that was just like, was it, that wasn't caught on camera, right? Like it just no. falls to me. Right. Um, so I think at that point it was kind of getting a lot of, traction on the news and someone just wanted to feel important and um you know a a tip like oh this woman came in and was asking about her daughters you know and she was frantic that sounds like that has to be connected right um because that's so memorable but yeah it's bullshit i don't think that these girls were out of sight of these uh up there abductors for a second for a hot second so i think that what happened was the girls got home um cheryl woke up she probably had been sleeping. <clears throat> she woke up. She um, uh, carried her purse in because she had cigarettes. There's cigarettes in the purse and um, was sharing the cigarettes with her daughter. That's why the three purses were, sound, were found hmm. on top of each other. They hear this crash. They go to the front door. Um, there's a woman lying down. They go running out to help her. Um, he steps up with a gun and moves around uh, to the back um, and probably all the way to the other street. And um, in case anybody heard the commotion um, and um, got them in the van and off they went and they were never seen again. So really, really terrible case. You know, um, he was clever enough uh, to get a ruse that would work because you know, you're not gonna go help a guy. You're gonna call the police. There's a drunk guy on my lawn passed out, right? But a woman? you're going to go out and you're going to check and see if she's okay. You're just not even going to think about it. So um, words of the wise women. <laughs> you ever see a woman passed out on your front lawn? Call the police. Call the police if you live alone or if you there are only other women in the house, call the police. Call the police regardless. Call the police regardless. <laughs> and then uh, lock your door. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. Um, a commotion at 2.30 in the morning never means a good thing ever. Don't go outside. Don't go outside. So that's why the dog was kept inside because they never entered the house. Um, and that's why Cheryl's cash was untouched because they never entered the house. And that's why the doors were unlocked because they never entered the house. So 
that's that's what I think happened. Sad. Do you have a sense of any of these three women on the other side? Are they? Yeah, they. Um, you know, that's that's actually. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was another interesting point. Because typically, um, when I do these things where you know young lives have been taken before their prime, um, there's a sense that oh, they're getting ready to cycle back through again and finish you know finish their timelines. I didn't get that sense with these three. I had the sense that they were actually well and good on the other side, that um, whatever trauma they experienced, they had um, healed from, and that they were, um, there wasn't really a sense of purpose associated with them, that they were just on the other side, kind of hanging out. Who knows what they, who knows if they have jobs or if they're traveling on motorcycles or in cars, in cool cars, who knows? Um, but the sense was that um, they were happy you know, that they were happy, they were whole and happy and um, uh, had come through that trauma. Okay, on the other side. So I didn't get a sense that the girls were ready to reincarnate through and usually I do, but mm -hmm. that just wasn't offered to me. So they might be, but it wasn't the information wasn't really offered to me. So I don't know. Honestly, so probably not a case that's going to ever be solved. Unless no, no. No, the only way it could be solved, honestly, I think is if the girlfriend stepped forward because she's already recanted her story, which is really interesting, right? So she's recanted and said, you know, I was threatened probably because she was starting to feel like shit, if they find anything and link me back to it, then I can say, well, I was threatened to say that I was with him or I was coerced into this situation, right? I was not a willing participant. So she was kind of covering her tracks then. And then um, she shuts down, right? She totally shuts down. She just doesn't say anything else. Um, I don't think the son, Cheryl's son had anything to do with it. And I think that, um, portraying him as, you know, having suspicious behavior, listen, if you are accused of the disappearance of your mom and your sister, right. And the police are interrogating you as if you did it, uh, are you going to stick around in that town? No, you're going to get the fuck out. You know, you're going to pack your shit and you're going to, like, I would, I'd be like, I don't need this shit. You know, I don't need to be here and be under suspicion and have th people think I had anything to do with this. He had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that the only way it could be solved, honestly, is if the girlfriend, I don't know, came forward and conscious got the best of her and she confessed. But there's this also this, this third person that feels like he's kind of, the evilest one of the three, obviously. Um, and he's got this connection. This, there's this feeling of like gang ties to him. So I doubt highly that she will be willingly, you know, she would willingly step forward, implicate herself and point fingers. I just, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to yeah. happen. Especially if this third person is still free. Yeah. Which is yeah. my feeling. So, yeah, you know, um, thank God Cox is, he's in jail, right? He's in jail. That's my understanding. Yes. Mm -hmm. Good. Hope he rots. Do I hope he rots? I hope, yep. I hope he's miserable. I hope that there's pain for him every single day. I can wish bad things on bad people. I'm okay with that. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, that's another, that's my impressions. I could be wrong. Obviously, always, I could be wrong. But <clears throat> tuning in, that kind of makes the most sense for me. Like, how do you get three women outside, especially if one's in a t-shirt and our underwear, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Um, with that, no sign that with early in the morning after 2 a.m., exactly. you know, exactly. Yeah. I just, I find it really interesting that he must've been, like you said, he was watching and stalking them. So he must've known that they were graduating that night. It just happened. Yeah. Had those girls gone to Branson and right. spent the night in the hotel, they probably would have, well, I, I don't know if they would have been them. I honestly think he was following them. I really do. I think that he had this planned for a while. I think he watched TV with his parents until they went to bed, you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock. And then he went out and he found the girls. And I think he just followed them wow. and stalked them and waited for an wow. opportunity. And he, he was, so even if they had found a hotel room in Branson, he would have gotten to them. And it was his okay. whole goal was to get to them. This wasn't like, oh, look, two girls are, you know, in a house with their mother, you know, the, the, he knew this was planned. This was really, really planned. But he would have had to have coordinated the green van and his girlfriend too. Yeah. You know, yeah. He, for he sure. He was following them. So for sure. Yeah. 
No, this was this was not a spur of the moment last kind of uh, crime of opportunity. This he planned this. This was the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, very disturbing. So I'm um this this uh this case has been very haunting since I researched it. So I'm you know, and and I really have to give you credit, Sans, for um diving into this because it's a creepy case. It's creepy, right? Yeah. Like yeah. there is, there's still this kind of ugh, energy associated with it. It's just like ugh, gives you the shudders and the goosebumps, you know? Yeah. This, this is the kind of thing that will keep you up at night because yeah. you think you're safe in your home. And in right. reality, if somebody really wants to harm you and right. has a plan that right. you have no knowledge of, it's very right. frightening. Right. Yeah. Right. It's um, similar to that case of um, the family in, I think, Connecticut, where there was the mother and the two daughters and um, mm. those- Chester, Chester, yeah, Connecticut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, where they stalked them from the grocery store um, and uh, murdered all three women. Uh, they made her go to the bank and withdraw money and she had written a note to the teller, you know, I'm being held against my will. Boy, those police really fucked that one up. Um, but, and both of those guys are dead now anyway. So, you know, good. I guess, good. Go, go to the other side and, you know, face what you did, I guess, you know, it's the best I can wish you. So, and hope you become a better soul after. Yes. Right. All right. So, uh, I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week, but I will come up with a good one. We're just going to make it up as we go along. Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, you've and got I, so much, also- in, you've got so much in the can. My sister truly I just, I bow down to my sister because you really have put in so much work and so much effort. Truly, these are amazing. I guess, I wish you guys could see, you know, my inbox. It's like, there's so much that she's already written up and researched and done. And then every week she's like, well, I sent you this case to read it. And I'm like, not yet. <laughs> Do I have to? <laughs> So yeah, so there's a lot in the can. We've got a lot of episodes um, ahead. So it's all good. It's all good. Also, wanted yeah, do you to want thank, to talk about um, the idea that you that you? No, I do not. No. Okay, but I do want to say thank you to the fan that left us a note on um, YouTube comments that had mentioned a couple of cases. I will look into them and see if there's a way to bring them to light on our podcast. So thank you for the suggestions. Keep them coming. I'm always interested in in hearing about a case that somebody has an interest in. So thank you. Yeah. Our fans and are awesome, click like, right? They're yeah. really getting involved, which I love. I love. It's so awesome. Please, at the end of this, click like. Yes, leave us subscribe. a comment. Check blah, out victoriabird.com if you would like a reading from me. I would love to give you a reading. Um, Mother's Day, right around Mother's Day, I had so many mothers come through from the other side. It was, it was really, really special. It was really lovely. So Father's Day is coming up. If you want to hear from your dad, sign up for a reading. Let me know. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Awesome. Thank you you very much. Love you too. Uh, Thank you everyone for listening and we'll look forward to seeing y'all next time. Bella squishy from me. Thanks for barking. Today's a, wait, what? No, I said she was barking in the middle of the podcast. Oh, I thought you said it was a birthday. I'm like, no, that was the fifth. I know her birthday. Okay. Thank you all very much. (laughs) Love you. Love you. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye.